0: Perhaps for many of you, a moment from your past. Nervous and standing before classroom peers, reciting, or perhaps better put, pouring out a memorized speech that you poured in the night before. The speech, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. With great assistance from Gary Will's Pulitzer Prize winning Lincoln at Gettysburg, the words that remade America. This is the story of a man, his words, and the day he delivered them, the 19th of November, 1863. And don't worry, this time, I'll do the reciting. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. In the aftermath of the great and terrible Battle of Gettysburg, generals Robert E. Lee and George Gordon Meade, both reacting to the bloody consequences that emanated from the first three days in July 1863, offered their resignations. Neither was accepted. One might easily understand their collective reaction, for in the course of the fight at Gettysburg and the overall campaign, there had been over 50,000 casualties. And yet, in November of that same year, with both generals still in command and their contesting armies shadow shadowboxing down in Virginia, people, north and south, thought back to the battle in southern Pennsylvania and wondered, what did it all mean? Four months after the fact, the Union victory at Gettysburg seemed hollow. Distant seemed the fighting around McPherson's Ridge, the Lutheran Seminary, Culp's Hill, Little Round Top, in the field of summer wheat and clover between Cemetery Hill and Seminary Ridge. Back over those first three days in July, those tranquil sites had been the stage for horrific warfare. Over the three days at Gettysburg, it has been estimated that 569 tons of ammunition were expended. And, after the battle... The some 2,400 people of Gettysburg were left to tend for ten times its population in wounded. Some 20,350 had been left behind, and one-third of them were Confederates. There, one of the volunteer nurses, Eliza Farnham, wrote, The whole town is one vast hospital, avenues of white tents. But good God, what these quiet-looking tents contained, dead and dying and wounded, torn to pieces in every way. Indeed, every structure in town was a field hospital, curtains used for bandages, unhinged doors for tables, and bloodied books for pillows." To handle the human holocaust, the Union Army of the Potomac left 106 medical officers, and the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia left perhaps 80 to 90. Surgeons and volunteer nurses worked to and beyond the point of exhaustion. An Army medical officer there wrote, The period of 10 days following the Battle of Gettysburg was the occasion of the greatest amount of human suffering known in this nation since its birth. The volume was so great that the Christian Commission and Sisters of Charity rushed to the town. The Union officer in charge of the United States Military Railroad, Colonel Herman Haupt, made certain his crews had the York and Cumberland Railroad running efficiently. Over that line, on July 9th alone, cars carried more than 1,000 wounded to nearby Baltimore. On July 12th, 1,219 more were delivered. More than half were Confederate soldiers. The significance of the greatest battle in North American history was not lost upon the photographers. They came and documented these historians with cameras. Alexander Gardner, Timothy O'Sullivan, James F. Gibson, and their assistants arrived as early as the afternoon of July the 5th before all the dead had been buried. Those three found illustrator-artist Alfred Ward of Harper's Weekly and Edwin Forbes of Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper, both sketching furiously to convey the carnage. Matthew Brady arrived a few days later, all recorded on sketch paper and glass plate film, the 19th century's fascination with death. And it wasn't only human. It is estimated that some three to 5,000 dead horses and mules were gathered together and burned. Adding to the nightmare of the battlefield, some seven to 8,000 bodies were scattered everywhere, and it was Gardner, O'Sullivan, and Gibson's photographs which brought the heartbreak, hell, and destruction of battle back to northern sitting parlors and living rooms. As you might imagine, the stench was overpowering windows in town were closed even in the heat of summer. Citizens kept handy bottles of pennyroyal or peppermint oil. Many of the dead had been hastily buried only under a thin covering of earth, some not deep enough to escape scavenging pigs and hogs. Something had to be done and Gettysburg citizen David McConaughey took on the task. He was president of the Evergreen Cemetery Association and wrote Pennsylvania Governor Andrew Curtin. He proposed the most liberal arrangements with our cemetery for the burial of our own dead and the dead of all the loyal states whose sons fell in the glorious strife. That idea suddenly ballooned when Governor Curtin named 32-year-old Judge David Wills to be his agent on the scene. Wills had studied law with Pennsylvania Congressman Thaddeus Stevens. A successful attorney, Wills owned the largest house on the town square. Three weeks after the battle, Judge Wills reported to Governor Curtin, In many instances, arms and legs and sometimes heads protrude, and my attention has been directed to several places where the hogs were actually rooting out the bodies and devouring them. The War Department jerked into action. They shipped in thousands of caskets. Contracts went out to bury or rebury the slain. And yes, that included Confederate dead, which had to be identified and, where found, buried deeper. Thirty-four bid. The highest was $8 per corpse. The winning offer was $1.59. 100 bodies a day was the anticipated average. The goal was to get the dead into the ground between the first frost and the ground freezing, but the task was too great. The rate could not be maintained. Completion was pushed back to next spring. When finally completed, 3,512 Union soldiers were laid to rest in what became the Soldiers' National Cemetery some 1,600 of them unknown, and again, yes, that meant some Confederate soldiers inadvertently were included. For the land to be used, money was raised from an interstate commission which purchased 17 acres for the new cemetery in the name of Pennsylvania. Its design followed a new trend, the rural cemetery. That movement had been launched in 1831 at Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. For the record, the Greek word for cemetery means sleeping place, and so design reflected just that. Chicago joined the movement with Rose Hill Cemetery in 1859, and Lincoln's Springfield, Illinois, followed suit with Oak Ridge. Rural architect William Saunders was hired to design the Gettysburg Cemetery's layout. Trained in Scotland, he was now employed by the United States Department of Agriculture. His plan included graded inclines, great curving ranks that gave equality to all loyal states. For a fitting dedication service, Judge Wills asked poets Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, John Greenleaf Whittier, and William Cullen Bryant for an original work. Overwhelmed by such a daunting task, none complied. A powerful oration was needed, one to last a couple of hours or so. Since Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster's passing, the natural choice was Edward Everett. A scholar, he was the former president of Harvard, who was described by Ralph Waldo Emerson as the master of eloquence. He had been the governor of Massachusetts and minister to England under John Tyler. He also served as Millard Fillmore's Secretary of State. Everett's delivery was as dramatic as was his diction and gestures. He memorized every word of his carefully written texts. No stranger to this sort of oration, he had already made speeches at Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill. Yes, for this dedication service, Everett was perfect. He was invited September 23rd and scheduled to appear October 23rd. However, he found he needed more time for preparation, and so the dedication ceremony was moved back to Thursday, November 19th. Another invitation, quite casually, went out to the 16th president. Mr. Lincoln was invited by wills on November the 2nd to, as he put it, formally set apart these grounds to their sacred use by a few appropriate remarks and performed this last, best, solemn act to the soldiers dead on this battlefield. The afterthought, to include the president, should not be considered a slight or insult. Federal responsibility was not expected in this state activity, and Lincoln did not take offense. He thought the trip and speech would be good for political fence-mending in Pennsylvania, And so, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton arranged for a 6 a.m. train for the 80-mile trip and noon affair. Anticipating a huge crowd, Lincoln decided to leave the day before, the 18th. The trip would take six hours with transfers in Baltimore and Hanover Junction, Pennsylvania. The early day departure did upset someone, Mary Todd Lincoln who was hysterical over her son Tad's illness, a fever. She was still traumatized by the untimely death of her 11-year-old son, Willie, who had died of typhoid fever some 20 months earlier, back in February of 1862. There were others who smelled death, political death. It was Judge David Will's acidic mentor, Pennsylvania Congressman Thaddeus Stevens, who thought Lincoln... A dead card in the Republican Party deck. Of Lincoln's invite, Stevens commented, Let the dead bury the dead. When Lincoln heard of Stevens' barb, he responded, These comments constitute a fair specimen of what has occurred to me throughout life. I have endured a great deal of ridicule without much malice and have received a great deal of kindness not quite free of ridicule. I am used to it. Beyond the demands of wrestling with civil war, the president had been busy. There had been the wedding of Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase's beautiful daughter, Kate, an urgent visit from New York's Thurlow Weed, who suggested ending the war with a 90-day armistice. And there was preparation for the annual year in message Mr. Lincoln would give to Congress. No matter The entourage left late, around noon of the 18th. A four-car train, it carried members of the cabinet, Army and Navy officers, and French and Italian ministers. All swapped stories until nearing Hanover Junction, Pennsylvania, Mr. Lincoln excused himself with, Gentlemen, this is all very pleasant, but the people will expect me to say something to them tomorrow, and I must give the matter some thought. Upon arrival, Wills and Everett met and escorted the president the two blocks from the station to the Wills' home. Lincoln's black servant, William Slade, took baggage up to the second story, and the president stayed in a room that looked out into the town square. Ironically, Thaddeus Stevens' old law office was just across the way. While Lincoln prepared, his young secretaries, John Hay, John Nicolay, and a traveling companion, Edwin Stanton, Jr., explored the town. Joined by D.C. journalist John Forney, they made slightly intoxicated, impromptu speeches down in the streets. One group of people cheered one of Forney's monologues. As they did, his mood turned, and he challenged them. "'You have no such cheers to your president down the street? Do you know what you owe to that great man? You owe your country.'" You owe your name as American citizens. A crowd did gather at the Wills' home, and serenaded, Lincoln emerged to say, In my position, it is somewhat important that I should not say foolish things. And someone from the crowd blurted, If you can help it. As was his routine, Mr. Lincoln begged off. Inside, the house was crowded. Pennsylvania Governor Curtin and Everett, the man who was to give the keynote oration the next day, almost had to sleep in the same bed. Everett's daughter did indeed sleep in the same bed with two other women, and under their weight, it collapsed during the night. The cemetery architect Saunders slept downstairs, sitting erect amongst those in the crowded parlor. The next morning... President and Secretary of State Seward toured the battlefield. About his speech, the president seemed almost cavalier about what he would say. A wordsmith, he was a slow writer, composed thoughts most carefully, and used punctuation to aid the timing of his oral delivery. Politically, he admired Jefferson. Oratorically, he admired Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun. Thursday, November 19, 1863, dawn promised a bright and pleasant Indian summer day. At the cemetery, as to the goal of burying all of the dead, only about one-third of the task had been completed. In fact, the whole burial site was quite incomplete. No matter, the ceremonies proceeded as planned. Despite some confusion and delay, the procession to the cemetery began to form out on the square around 10 a.m. Mr. Lincoln emerged with his silk-top hat. Around it, still a mourning band for his son, Willie. Other than white gloves, he was dressed completely in black. Astride his horse, he sat gracefully, but as time elapsed, he began to slump. About 11, the column finally began to move. Behind him, there were governors of six of the 18 participating states. There were cabinet members like Secretary of State William Seward and federal officers who had fought at Gettysburg like Major General Abner Doubleday and Brigadier General John Gibbon. Finally moving, the procession headed south. It ran straight from the square down Baltimore Street, ironically the same route Confederate soldiers used to pursue Union troops four months earlier, awaiting the procession an estimated fifteen to 20,000. The speaker's platform was set by design, some distance from the burial operations. With all in place, finally, the program began with music by Bergfield's band, That was followed by a prayer from Rev. T. H. Stockton, Doctor of Divinity, whose text was four times the length of Lincoln's address. Then came music from the Marine Band, and now Everett rose to take the podium. He had arrived early to prepare in a tent behind the platform. At 69 years of age, he suffered from kidney trouble and used the tent to relieve himself before the three hour ceremony. His thick manuscript sat on the little table before him. However, he ostentatiously refused to look at it. With a voice that was described as sweet and perfectly modulated, he began. Standing beneath this serene sky, overlooking these broad fields now reposing from the labors of the waning year, the mighty Alleghanies dimly towering before us, the graves of our brethren beneath our feet, it is with hesitation that I raise my poor voice to break the eloquent silence of God and nature. Introduction delivered. He now plunged into the body of his address. He outlined the beginning of the war, reviewed the three-day battle, discussed and denounced state sovereignty, gave historical and classical allusions. He quoted the ancient Athenian Pericles, whose funeral oration around 430 B.C. included, The whole earth is the sepulcher of illustrious men. While he spoke, the president at various times took a copy of his remarks from his coat pocket, put on his steel-rimmed spectacles, and read over his speech. After some two hours, Everett threw back his head and concluded with, But they, I am sure, will join us in saying, as we bid farewell to the dust of these martyr heroes, that wheresoever throughout the civilized world the accounts of this great warfare are read. And down to the latest period of recorded time, in the glorious annals of our common country, there will be no brighter page than that which relates the Battle of Gettysburg. As he returned to his seat, After two hours of oration and some 13,508 words, he might well have assumed he had delivered a speech for the ages. Indeed, if he did, the prolonged applause reinforced that belief. After the featured oration, there was more music and a hymn composed by B.B. B. French Esquire and performed by the Baltimore Glee Club. Then, finally, it was time for the president's few appropriate remarks. Ward Lehman, Lincoln's bodyguard, moved to the podium and with great understated simplicity announced, The President of the United States. The lanky frame of the six foot four, sixteenth president rose, moved to the front of the platform, and in a high pitched tenor that carried and was clearly heard, he began to slowly read, as one reporter put it, in a sharp, unmusical voice. Presidential Secretary John Hay remembered his delivery carried more grace than usual. The president was interrupted five times by applause. Its length, between two and three minutes, was delivered with almost shocking brevity. When he finished, many I'm certain thought, is that it? Speech complete, there was a pregnant pause, then certain he had finished, long continued applause. Now came a dirge sung by a choir, then to close a benediction by Reverend H. L. Bar, Doctor of Divinity. Ceremony over, Lincoln returned to the wills for lunch and an unscheduled reception which required the president to shake hundreds of hands for about an hour. The final event was a patriotic rally held at the Presbyterian Church. A days in, an exhausted president boarded the train with his party at about 6.30. After his speech and throughout most of the afternoon's events, Mr. Lincoln seemed listless, gloomy. Now on the train, weariness set in. He stretched out on one of the side seats in the car's drawing room with a wet folded towel draped over his eyes and forehead. Back at the executive mansion by midnight, he was relieved that Tad's fever had broken, but now he had his own medical complication to battle. He was diagnosed with varioloid, a mild form of smallpox. Kept isolated the next day from business and office seekers, Lincoln mused, There is one thing good about this. I now have something I can give everybody. In the coming days, reviews rolled in about his address. You may be surprised, but they were mixed. From Matter of Fact, John Hay wrote, Mr. Everett spoke as he always does perfectly, and the president in a firm, free way, with more grace than is his wont, said his half-dozen lines of consecration, and the music wailed, and we went home through crowded and cheering streets, and all the particulars are in the daily papers. To Complimentary. A Cincinnati editor reviewed the speech, The Right Thing, in the right place, and a perfect thing in every respect. The Chicago Tribune added, The dedicatory remarks by President Lincoln will live among the annals of man. Too biting. The Tribune's rival, the Chicago Times, wrote the next day, The cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly flat and dish-watery utterances of the man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the President of the United States. And the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania Patriot and Union added in an editorial dated Tuesday, November 24, 1863, To say of Mr. Everett's oration that it rose to the height which the occasion demanded, or to say of the President's remarks that they fell below our expectations, would be alike false. Neither the orator nor the jester surprised or deceived us. Whatever may be Mr. Everett's failings, he does not lack sense. Whatever may be the President's virtues, he does not possess sense. It also included We pass over the silly remarks of the President. For the credit of the nation, we are willing that the veil of oblivion shall be dropped over them, and that they shall be no more repeated or thought of. A Sidney George Fisher was there, and wrote, The orator was Edward Everett. His speech was long but commonplace, though well written and appropriate. Mr. Lincoln made a very short speech, but to the point, and marked by his pithy sense, quaintness, and good feeling. Perhaps the greatest critique came from Edward Everett himself, who wrote Lincoln the very next day, the 20th. The great orator asked for a copy of Lincoln's speech, and then volunteered, Permit me to express my great admiration of the thoughts expressed by you with such eloquent simplicity and appropriateness at the consecration of the cemetery. I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. As to the address itself, two to three minutes, ten sentences, and depending on which surviving copy you inspect, some 272 words. We all know Mr. Lincoln began with, fourscore and seven years ago. It was a phrase borrowed from Psalms chapter 90, a chapter attesting to suffering and resurrection. And perhaps an 1861 speech given by Galusha A. Grow of Pennsylvania in the House of Representatives who opened a speech with fourscore and five years ago. Mr. Lincoln ended his address after complex melodic pairings with a strong row of monosyllables of, by, and for the people. It was an effect the president particularly liked. That phrase borrowed from perhaps the most militant transcendentalist Theodore Parker, a man who mastered 20 languages, gave money to the violent abolitionist John Brown, and whose grandfather fought on the green at Lexington. Parker used the triple refrain constantly when he spoke about government and, most assuredly, influenced Lincoln. Throughout Lincoln's address, there were no proper names, no particulars, no sides, no local references. Not even the name of the battle or the cemetery was ever mentioned. There was also no mention of slavery, constitutionality, sectionalism, property, or states' rights. For Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address expressed ideals. It resembled classic Athenian funeral oration and was filled with classical rhetoric befitting the democratic burial of soldiers, romantic imagery of birth and rebirth expected at the dedication of rural cemeteries. As historian Gary Wills noted, It made use of biblical vocabulary to trumpet a nation's consecration, its suffering and resurrection. And it played upon a culture of death that made mourning serve life. Perhaps it has been some time since you read those words, or some time since you allowed that speech further reflection. If you will, once more, Mr. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. How appropriate those words, and particularly in the month that honors all military veterans who have served this country. Appropriate even today, those words penned over a century and a half ago, delivered by a man who tried to find in his few appropriate remarks what all those who died at Gettysburg gave in their last full measure of devotion. Yes, his oration that Thursday in November still holds great meaning for us in this day and in these times. True, words written in 1863 and for those slain at Gettysburg, but for every veteran who has served and died in the service of this nation and its long history, Mr. Lincoln's words still resonate and offer to those of us who remain a challenge. Listen again. It is for us the living rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us. From those, these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. The 16th president was most certainly wrong about one thing when he mused that the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, for his message is timeless. It embraces each and every time our democracy has sent and will send its own, its fathers and mothers, its sons and daughters into harm's way. Mr. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address continues to give purpose and profound meaning each and every time this democracy mourns the loss of those who gave and will give their lives so that we might continue to enjoy and God help us all make better and more compassionate government of, by, and for the people. Back in November of 2013, the 150th anniversary of Lincoln's visit to Gettysburg, the same Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Patriot and Union that once printed we pass over the silly remarks of the President. For the credit of the nation, we are willing that the veil of oblivion shall be dropped over them. Printed yet another editorial about Mr. Lincoln's remarks that day in Gettysburg. It read, Seven score and ten years ago, The forefathers of this media institution brought forth to its audience a judgment so flawed, so tainted by hubris, so lacking in the perspective history would bring that it cannot remain unaddressed in our archives. We write today in reconsideration of the Gettysburg Address, delivered by then-President Abraham Lincoln in the midst of the greatest conflict seen on American soil. Our predecessors perhaps under the influence of partisanship, or of strong drink, as was common in the profession at that time, called President Lincoln's words silly remarks, deserving a veil of oblivion, apparently believing it an indifferent and altogether ordinary message, unremarkable in eloquence and uninspiring in its brevity. In the fullness of time we have come to a different conclusion, No mere utterance then or now could do justice to the soaring heights of language Mr. Lincoln reached that day. By today's words alone we cannot exalt, we cannot hallow, we cannot venerate this sacred text, for a grateful nation long ago came to view those words with reverence, without guidance from this chagrined member of the mainstream media. The world will little note nor long remember our emendation of this institution's record, but we must do as conscience demands. In the editorial about President Abraham Lincoln's speech delivered November 19, 1863, in Gettysburg, the Patriot and Union failed to recognize its momentous importance, timeless eloquence, and lasting significance. The Patriot News regrets the error. In these troubled times, if we, too, are too busy, are so indifferent to remember and appreciate the importance, the eloquence, and significance of Mr. Lincoln's words, so should we regret our error, our shallowness. Indeed, so should we all. Finally, we welcome another patron for our efforts here. Keith Harvey of Lynchburg, Virginia, thank you for your kind words and for your support. Please know that it and you are appreciated. Next time we get together, we'll gather at the Rappahannock River in Virginia where bloody battle and humanity share center stage. I hope you'll join us for the Battle of Fredericksburg And for the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia and the Union Army of the Potomac, their shared winter of 1862-63. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.